This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. Welcome back to episode number 76 of the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast, where this week we're joined by Kate Jones, who is a teacher, leader and author of several retrieval practice books which provide fantastic resources for our classrooms. Kate is Head of History at a British school in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. I'm looking forward to getting Kate on. I'm so passionate about this retrieval practice um, after um, kind of dabbling with it in lockdown and getting back into the classroom and, and using it as well. So I'm looking forward to learning more about it because I'm very much still a novice. So originally from Wrexham uh, in North Wales, Kate taught in the UK for six years at Elfed High School before relocating to the United Arab of Emirates, as Lewis just said, in 2016. Kate is also a lead practitioner specialising in teaching and learning and most notably retrieval practice, which we're going to discuss in this episode. So we'll get moving and get Kate onto the podcast. How are you doing? Welcome to a wee bit of everything, Kate. How's, how's you been? Oh, thank you. I'm very excited to be talking to you both. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what um, you've got to say in terms of uh, retrieval practice and you know, a wee bit about your job over in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Uh, so... First off then, so before we get into the kind of main part of the, the podcast, would you be able to give us and the listeners a little background information on your career to kind of get into Abu Dhabi and um, your work in the UK as well? Yeah, so I started teaching straight after university, so I've spent my whole life in school <laughs> as a student or teacher. And um, I taught for six years in Wales, that's where I'm from originally, North Wales. And I had the travel bug and there was lots of these teachers you hear going off to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. And I went on holiday to just check it out and loved it. Um, Made the decision five years ago um, to come out to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, and I've worked in two British curriculum schools. Although, as you know, because you're in Scotland, there is no such thing as a British curriculum (laughs) because (laughs) what you do in Scotland differs. Uh, England and Wales so I think probably English curriculum is the best way to describe it with international GCSEs and A-levels so that means when there's decisions made about exams in the UK when Boris Johnson's making an announcement that affects us oh really I don't know that yeah absolutely I think um, a lot of people perhaps might not realize that that we do we follow British exam boards so that's had this big ripple effect around the world but I'm actually now leaving Abu Dhabi in a few months. Um, I was meant to leave in July, but my replacement can't start until January. So I do oh, not God. want to leave my <laughs> classes without a teacher for a term. So I'm doing this one extra term and then uh, I'm moving to London, which is Lovely. very 
and I'm joining a company called Inner Drive where they focus on the science of learning and working with teachers, students and parents. So that's just right up my street. So I'm very excited about that. Is that, going to, is that going to be full time then, I take it? Yeah, yeah, that is going to be full time. So I'm a history teacher and I'm yeah. head of history at the moment. So I'll be taking a break from the classroom, working with lots of schools, parents, students, about study techniques. So yeah, full time, busy job. Nice one, that sounds good. And do you think you'll go back to teaching or do you think that'll be you? Yeah, absolutely, we'll go back to teaching. But I've written six books whilst yep. teaching full time and it is tough. And people often say, how do you do it? I said, um, I love writing, but I wouldn't recommend <laughs> in, a, in many ways, uh, writing and full-time teaching. And it's a double-edged sword. It's really tricky because one of the things that people really like about my books is that I'm literally living and breathing it in the classroom and then writing about it later. Mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. And it's very authentic, but then it does obviously take a bit of a hit on my <laughs> work-life balance. Yeah, I can um, imagine. So, uh, yeah, and it's taken off, especially with retrieval practice, that schools want to work with me and I'm very interested and I want to do that. I want to help as many students and schools as possible. Yeah. So I'm going to spend this time now doing that and obviously get a bit of balance in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, But yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go back to teaching. I'm always going to be a teacher. I, I actually think when I go back, that I will go back as a classroom teacher. Uh, either, well, I've, I've been thinking about this, either a classroom teacher or senior leadership teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. I have been a middle leader in three different schools and I feel like I don't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, I've done it, I've got mixed experiences of it. So um, I'd probably, I think I'd prefer being a classroom teacher. Yeah, I just kind of get your get into the kind of nitty-gritty of the teaching and learning and make a yeah. difference, make a positive difference to the attainment. Yeah, absolutely. I love that the thing about being a middle leader, which is so tough as head of department, is that you have a really full on timetable as well as the leadership responsibilities. Yeah. So it's really difficult middle leadership um, and there's a lot to do. So I think, um, and I love writing about teaching. I think I'll do that hopefully throughout my whole career yep. so i'd rather be doing the, the full-time teaching and reflecting and sharing and i think that's something that that brings me a lot of joy nice one um similar to the podcast as well like people ask us how we can combine teaching and doing uh, 70 odd episodes but i think it comes down to really enjoying what we do as well and it's it's more it kind of is rewarding and we enjoy we enjoy doing it so i think that's why we turn up and do it similar to your, your writing skills um what can I get on to the kind of main part of the podcast then, Kate, um, which we're very interested to hear more about is, is your work around retrieval practice. Um, what, what kind of attracted you to uh, this kind of teaching and learning approach? Well, I um, I basically, it's come from experience because when I moved out here in 2016, I started reading more about retrieval practice and had that realisation, like lots of teachers, I don't do this enough. Uh, so yes, I do this. I quiz my students, but I get through so much content mm -hmm. and leave it so long before I ask students to recall information from memory that I thought I need to do things differently. So in 2016, that's why I thought I'm do 
I, at the start of the new academic year. And it was really interesting because I had a year 10, so they were just starting their exams, a GCSE class, and a year 12 class who'd just done their GCSEs were going on to A-levels. Year 10 completely embraced everything I was telling them about retrieval practice and study strategies. And year 12 did not, <laughs> put it that way. They had a really, um, I don't want to say bad attitude, but they just passed their exams through highlighting and rereading. So when right. I'm telling them to do things differently, they didn't, and I understand this. They said, well, no, miss, actually this worked for us. We did really well. And it's quite late in their schooling career for them to drastically change what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult for them to put the highlighter pens down and stop rereading. Whereas year 10, because this was their first exam year, just were like sponges, listen to everything I said. And, um, yeah, that was, a, I taught the whole year group. So that was quite a daunting thing. The first time I've taught the year group on my own because all the results are my, <laughs> my classes. Yeah. But then there's benefits to that with a consistency. Yeah. So is that like kind of 15 year old? Yeah. 16? Is that yeah. like four, fourth years? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Is that the highest? No, highest is A level? Yeah, GCSE. Oh. It would be equivalent to National Five. Yeah, sorry, National yeah. Five, that's oh, it. Yeah. Right, so you, you were teaching all, how many classes were, was it, were in National Five level then? So it's really interesting, that school, uh, as my previous school, it was a split campus of boys and girls. So I had a girls class and a boys class, and I would run across the buildings. Getting the steps up. Yeah, but that was really interesting as well. So I was teaching exactly the same content, but one class was just all girls and one was all boys. And previously, um, because I'd done the exam analysis, there was a gender gap that the girls were outperforming the boys. So this was again something that I was very mindful of. I've got to get the boys using retrieval practice. And I had that frank conversation with them saying, you know, actually, um, when girls are outperforming boys, in the case, it's, it's usually, well, there's some, not that much, but there's some research that is because the girls embrace retrieval practice, space practice more so than the boys. And that the boys have this overconfidence and that, that, that perhaps they don't need to study as much. Um, and there's this confidence gap. And that's why girls may study even more because at times they can lack the confidence. Mm -hmm. I had two years with a, this amazing year group. And I remember we finished the content later than all of the subjects. And they were a little panicking. I said, we will finish before you leave for study. But we've been doing retrieval practice for two years. You know, that's why we're a little bit behind because we always revisit. I haven't rushed through content to finish two months early to do two months of crammed revision. Um, and at this point, retrieval practice wasn't, I think it's fair to say, is mainstream in the school mm -hmm. that I was at. Mm -hmm. So everyone was doing it slightly different to me. And then when the exam came, that year group just felt so confident, so did I. And then when the results were published, I mean, I know obviously there's a lot about results and the school I was at and the context, but the results were, um, it was 100% A to A star. And, and just to give you an example, there was one boy in that class who had a, a cat four predictor of a D and he got 50 out of 50. And then all of a sudden, because <laughs> he'd got four marks on the paper and the history was A to A star, 
the spotlight was on me. <laughs> I was a golden girl. People were asking, what's the secret? What did you do differently? People, are, you know, the students who've done really well in history, they hadn't done as well in some other subjects. I was like, there's no secret. It was, well, it was a combination of things. Yep, yep. But I genuinely believe this approach, ongoing approach of retrieval practice was transformative. So then that led to me presenting to staff saying, this is what I did. Um, this is how I planned the curriculum. This is how I did it for two years. It led to me then sharing at other conferences and events, writing, and then I ended up writing my book. Yeah. And it just evolved from there. And you're yeah, absolutely. Still, still, still using it in your teaching, I guess, as well. And yeah. Having, having success with it. Learning. Yeah, just kept learning more and more about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've definitely became attracted to it recently as well in lockdown when I've been using it with my, my classes through the online platform when we went in school on Google Forms. Um, but would you, would you maybe be able to elaborate um, a bit on the kind of aspirations behind it or the kind of principles behind, you know, like high quality retrieval practice in action um, within a history lesson? I'm sure it'll be transferable across subjects or am I not talking? Yeah, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. The key principles yeah. are yeah. transferable. Um, the idea that you have to recall information from memory and there's yep. different types of retrieval practice. So we have recognition, which is a multiple choice question where the answer is there in front of students for them to select and identify. And that multiple choice questions are a really interesting one because they could be very badly designed. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research for retrieval practice too. And this is still something I love talking about. That's such a geeky thing to say. I love talking about multiple choice questions. but. As part of my research, I went and completed lots of online multiple choice quizzes and I was doing really well on quizzes I knew nothing about because of the question design. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not so much when I say the question design, the question, it's the, the options. Yep. That there's, a, I call it the Bradley Walsh effect because the program, The Chase, where they always have a comedy option and they always have an obviously incorrect option and then you could sort of narrow it down mm -hmm. and then that reduces the challenge. However, multiple choice questions can be very powerful, very effective. And you've just got to think very carefully about the question and then the plausible distractors, the other options that are available. And even sometimes actually, because one of the problems with multiple choice questions, how do we know if students are guessing? But even if there's an element of guesswork, there could still be an element of recall because they might not know the answer, but they might retrieve information. Well, I know it's not that answer. That can't be the correct answer because this is what I know. Yeah. I know it's not that option because I know this. So there's an element of recall that has got them to that. So the first one obviously is uh, recognition. Then we have cued recall, retrieval practice where there is prompts. Now the prompts could be keywords on the board. Um, I share an idea called go for gold, where I say try and include as many of these keywords and bronze will be easier words, and subject specific terms, silver, gold, that build up the challenge. Yep. So I've given students six keywords. I've said, okay, two weeks ago or last week or last lesson, whenever you want to do it, we focused on this. Can you summarize it and aim to include those keywords? So I'm giving them clues. Or I could use pictures or just my verbal prompts. If, if, and the students are very good at this. So I say, Miss, what type of thing do you want me to include in my answer? Miss, is this right? And then before you know it, we're giving them clues and hints. Yeah. 
but as long as we don't answer the question, that's okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> got free recall where there's no support. That's very difficult. Write down everything you can remember about this topic. So you just put that on the board and then they just try and like create a mind map almost of all this stuff? Yeah, it, it, or just a list? You could do a list, you could do a mind map, you could do a paragraph. Here right. are six keywords and I would like, I often give um, the example so we, uh, of the Treaty of Versailles one that comes to mind, World War One, and the problem is the Treaty of Versailles, this topic in history, there's a lot they could write about. They could write about the aims, the terms, the effects. And if I do just do a free recall, write what you know about the Treaty of Versailles or write what you know about Henry VIII. They could literally go off on any sort of direction, tangent. So to be a bit more specific and precise, then I'll give the clues and the prompts to help shape their answer. So instead of just write whatever you know about Henry VIII, and yeah. then they may just yeah. focus on his wives, mm -hmm. then I could have the keywords, um, monasteries and Pope, and then think, oh, okay, I'm writing about how he oh, Rome. So um, yeah, and then free recall works better with older students, although we can do it with younger students when they're more confident and perhaps later on in a topic. And free recall is the type of thing like a brain dump mm -hmm. where you just say, right, you've got five minutes, write down everything you know about this. All that could be verbal. You've got a few minutes to talk to your partner. They will listen. Stop everyone. Now your partner is going to talk to you and they're just going to verbally recall it. Because I think that's something else we should encourage, verbal and written retrieval yeah. practice. Mm. Because um, how quickly and confidently you remember something is based on retrieval strength. And I've noticed with students that some students, when they answer verbally, they can answer it very quickly and confidently. Mm -hmm. But then they struggle to articulate in their writing. Definitely, yeah. The other way around, yeah. Yeah, now you see that a lot in PE as well. They can tell you. They speak confidently about the knowledge and understanding the concepts, but then when they try and put it on the paper, it's they struggle. Um, yeah, but that's useful because then we know the issue isn't the recall. The issue is the literacy skills. Yeah, yeah. And it's important that, that we do recognise that distinction. And that's why it probably is, if the student is struggling when you're doing written retrieval tasks, then it is worth trying a verbal retrieval task to see, is the issue the recall? Mm -hmm. Or is it how they are communicating it? Yeah. And in terms of like practice uh, or task we could set a class or the way you teach, do you teach like, I remember hearing uh, Dan Leslie tell us in a podcast, it's like 80% should be retrieval from previous content and then 20% should be new content each sort of lesson. Would you go along with that kind of model or do you, how, how, how would you work your retrieval practice? Do you do it every few weeks or the start of every lesson or? Uh, yeah, I've read that about the 80%, but the reality is, uh, any teacher will tell you this, especially when you've got exam classes, you've got new content to teach and yeah. we're up against it. Yeah. So the reality is, is that happening in my classes, 80% retrieval practice? No, I teach A-level, I teach, sorry, like hires mm -hmm. and national, yeah. and so on. Um, younger, like lower down, you've got a bit more flexibility in terms of timing, but I just think that teachers will, will find their way. For example, I've worked with lots of teachers and they've, they've struggled to find that balance between mm -hmm. doing too, too little, too much, not knowing you know, what's right. I think retrieval practice got slightly mutated 
uh, into people just thinking it was a five minute starter task. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, it is a really great way to start a lesson. A do now, come in, get focused. We can do retrieval tasks. That's how I start my lessons most of the time. Majority of the time I start with retrieval practice. Sometimes it may be short, but other times it can take longer. And um, because mistakes are made, misconceptions are addressed, and you make a choice, okay, am I going to deal with that later and use that to inform my future planning of mm -hmm. next lesson? Or am I going to tackle it right now? And that's, we make lots of decisions in a lesson um, and a lesson plan has to be flexible yeah. when i trained it was very rigid it was literally every five minutes and i mm -hmm. as, a, as a trainee would have the lesson plan on the desk and keep looking down and going oh my goodness i've got two minutes so i need to yeah. move on to this. it's just not realistic is it <laughs> it's just not realistic it's not how teaching works it's not how learning happens either yeah yeah so that's a difficult one but um, Rosenshine's principles uh, are very popular, they're very helpful, and that suggests regular review, and that has a suggestion of about eight minutes at the start of a lesson. And that is a, a good guidance. However, sometimes I speak to teachers and they, or, or schools where they say, yes, we use retrieval practice, we do five multiple choice questions at the start of every lesson, and that's that. And I think, well, it's great that you're using retrieval practice, but you're only using multiple choice, not the queued, not the free recall. So you're not getting the benefits of all the others. It's one of the most effective teaching and learning strategies. Why would we limit it to five minutes when it's so powerful? And the other thing that has been a game changer for me is with lesson objectives, learning intentions, it was always by the end of the lesson you should have learned this and now we realize learning doesn't happen that way learning happens over time so if we have a lesson objective at the end of a lesson we might want to ask questions about it and check for understanding that's performance what we need to do to see if that learning intention has been achieved is revisit the same learning intention once some time has passed. Yeah, I was going to ask that about the kind of space inside of it. So it's not just about going back to the previous lesson, it's about maybe waiting a few, yeah. weeks, a few weeks, then going back. Have enough. Yeah, well, I created a retrieval grid. Uh, it's probably my most popular resource. And the reason I created this grid is what I was very guilty of was saying, I would probably say, what did we do last lesson? And I'd say, well, we did this. And that was more focusing on the task rather than what we learned. But even then, I'd say, what did we learn about last lesson? And I wouldn't ask about further back. Yeah, yeah. So I created a grid that has questions or question or questions about last lesson, last week, two weeks ago, further back. That forced me to go further back and it forced me to space out retrieval practice as well um, but the question i get asked a lot and there is there is no answer for this like no exact answer there are suggestions but teachers will say how long should i wait from teaching new content to doing a retrieval task what's the optimum amount of time and i have read different suggestions but then um, there was a recent um review of research published by Professor Pooja Agarwal and her colleagues that looked into this 
And the overall advice was try not to become fixated on that, just use retrieval practice, because there's so many variables with it. Mm -hmm. For example, it depends what you've done in that lesson links to prior knowledge how complex it is. Maybe you spent two lessons on material. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of factors that can influence how long to wait. The main thing is that if we ask within that same lesson, then it's not enough time has passed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then if we leave it too long, then it can be forgotten and very difficult. The retrieval strength will be low. Yep. So, it is about sort of, and that's again where teachers use their professional judgment. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why that approach last lesson last week further back is very helpful. So, so see, just kind of touching on that then, Kate, like you're saying, it's obviously more important to wait for that time and then revisit it maybe like a few weeks down the line. See, after you have taught new content in a lesson, like, is it still, do you obviously still to recap what you've done within that lesson. Do you think that's still good to kind of cement it at the end, like with your kind of plenary and, or? Yeah. So um, I've, I've literally just written a blog post for Doug Lamov on his Teach Like a Champion website, because uh, this is through conversations with him, where he, in his book, Teach Like a Champion, one of the techniques is an exit ticket. Mm -hmm. And an exit ticket has about three, three to five questions based on content learned that lesson. Now that's still a really good idea. And that does that focuses on the checking for understanding in the lesson and the performance. Now, what I would then suggest is use those same questions on the exit ticket and the same template just for workload and change it to exit <coughs> ticket and use that same resource as a starter task the week after or mm -hmm. next lesson and you could tell students this and you could tell them why and you could tell them because the problem with an exit ticket they might just be thinking i want to get out of the lesson and just scribble something down yeah so i'm checking for your understanding but you will be asked these questions again and we'll be able to see how much you can recall so pay attention mm -hmm. and then they're aware of that and then let's just say you do wait until you've seen them and maybe a week or two weeks later you ask them the same questions and it was quite interesting to see is to compare, uh, maybe give them back their exit tickets. Did they write more detail the first time around? Or what's interesting, sometimes when they do forget and they go, I've completed this before. Why can't I remember it now? And then we say, well, that's why we use retrieval practice because it will strengthen that information in your long-term memory. So there's definitely a place for using it at the end of a lesson for performance and then using it again for long-term learning. That's also a really good idea to help them see why they're actually doing it. Like, because sometimes, like, why, why are we doing this? And then you might not have a, a, a good enough way to articulate why, why you're doing it. And then it's sometimes hard for a, a teenager to comprehend that. But actually showing them, like you just explained there, that's a, it kind of sinks in maybe a bit more. I have lots of conversations with my students about memory. Um, the classic one I have is, um, you might have been in a situation, is where if we do have hands up for a discussion, and then you come to a student who's been waiting patiently with their hand up, and then they say, oh, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. And then they feel a bit stupid and embarrassed. And then I say, no, 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 that's fine. It's because your working memory is limited. 
we can only hold so much information in our working memory and we can only hold it for so long so after 18 to 30 seconds and it's not if it's not rehearsed or repeated it's forgotten forever and then they look like really confused and then i give them an example from my life and say you know when we go to the mall and the car parks are huge and i will look where i've parked my car but then I go shopping and I've completely forgot. But why have I forgot something from two hours ago when I can remember something from 20 years ago? The reason is because where I parked my car never transferred to my long-term memory. Working memory is unreliable. And the fact I know that my working memory is unreliable is the reason why I now take a photograph of where I parked my car. Because I know I can't count on it to tell me where it is. So then I'll look on my phone, oh yeah, here it is. And then they just have this moment where they, ah, right, okay. Uh, and I do think students really should have this knowledge and understanding of memory and learning. And as you said, it helps them understand why we do the things that we do with them in the classroom. It's, it's yeah. similar, similar to the podcast as well. And I'm thinking, of, thinking about a question to ask um, and I'm listening and then it just goes out of my head. And then Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've been asked in interviews, three questions at once <laughs> where they yeah. say can I ask this question and then what do you think about this and this and I'm answering the first question I go sorry what what were the other points yeah I know. because I couldn't hold it in my working memory and I've said that to them I've said oh um working memory is limited it's popped out <laughs> <laughs> this is how this is what happens to us all and it was so funny because that student I have a working memory it's limited and I was like don't worry we, we all do <laughs> Yeah. We all have this limited working memory, but we all yeah. have a powerful long-term memory. Yeah, I take it, obviously things only get stored in your long-term memory, like if it's like a key moment in your life or like you say, if it's something that's just revisited all the time. Well, there's, there's two aspects here. So a key moment in your life is what we call an, an episodic memory. Um, and this could be positive or negative. And I do think in school, we want to create lots of episodic memories. You've probably got memories from high school of, well, you two are sporty, so probably, I don't know, winning gold on sports day, things yeah. like that. Things champion, that are, champion. Yeah, 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 champion, of course. <laughs> um, or it just, you know, memories with your friends. One that was recent is obviously 9-11 was 20 years ago. I remember exactly where I was yeah. 20 years ago when I found out that information, who I was with, how I was feeling. That's episodic. So episodic are these memories that are very powerful and emotional. But when it comes to learning, academic teaching and learning, what they're semantic memories. So the example I give is knowledge that Rome is the capital of Italy is semantic. It's like an encyclopedia of facts. My memory eating pizza in Rome is episodic because it's a nice happy memory for me. So we want to um have these combination of these memories the, the problem that has happened previously in the past is when episodic memories in a lesson have overtaken the semantic ones so where we've done things in a lesson um <laughs> so we had a lesson oh my goodness that's embarrassing um i'll have to send you the photograph this is years and years ago <laughs> i was in the uk and we would i was teaching a lesson about famous individuals from the 20th century and I dressed up as Elvis because that was the only outfit in the fancy dress shop, right? <laughs> Honestly, I went, I spent like 50 quid on that outfit. Education. <laughs> so, and I did the accent and everything. So <laughs> I put the lesson in the style of Elvis. And I was teaching about all these different, you know, politicians and people and leaders. 
But all they will ever remember from that lesson is me dressed as Elvis. <laughs> now, I don't mind that because now students who are adults go, do you remember when you dressed as Elvis? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I remember that. And they remember that because it was a funny, nice, happy memory. However, from a teaching and learning perspective, it's a bit of a fail because they don't remember any of the content. They're like, why were you dressed as Elvis? Like, what was that all about? What were you doing? So when it comes to factual information and academic teaching and learning, then that's, that's the semantic uh, recall, which there'll be some things that, that we learn that we don't have an emotional connection to, but it was still transferred to long-term memory. And in order to do that, to get passed through the working memory to long-term memory, that's in the encoding stage and we explain information we expose students to this material the advice from graham nuttall and rosenshine is generally if we explain or expose students to material at least three times or three different ways but we already probably do that we will explain it in the class we might have a discussion then a consolidation task then you might have the exit ticket and then you review it so if I want my students to know something, there's, there's lots of ways that I will go through that. But we have to do, I think we have to do that, a really good job of that and not rush to the retrieval stage. Because as we said previously, that what teachers tended to do was get through content and leave it way too long and neglect retrieval practice. Now there's lots of enthusiasm and awareness about retrieval practice. We can't skip the encoding stage. We've got to do a really good job of explaining the information, checking for understanding, and we can only recall information from long-term memory if it's in long-term memory. Yeah. So we've still got to do, got to take our time, be very thorough. That's why that 20% as a teacher, this is, is not realistic because mm the content but if we do a really good job of the content and we don't wait too long but we allow some wait time then we can check what can be recalled from long-term memory yeah but i was on a course a leadership course in school yesterday and there was the, the biggest thing single thing that raised attainment from the evidence-based research um booklet that we get given out was feedback in terms of the, how it raises attainment and the impact of it would, would retrieval practice come under feedback then? Because they're obviously receiving feedback and we're receiving feedback about the gaps in knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. this is something a, a common mistake I made and others made um, was to rush through the feedback with retrieval practice. Stick the answers on the board, check your mm -hmm. scores, let's move on. But actually what's really powerful about retrieval practice, which highlighting, rereading and underlining, they do not show you what you can and cannot recall. Whereas... Mm -hmm. If you do a quiz, it's there in black and white. You've answered the question, or you couldn't remember it, or you've answered it incorrectly. So then it's identified gaps in your knowledge. So that should then plan, help the teachers plan yeah. what they need to revisit, what they can move on from, and it can help the student. Here's a gap in my knowledge. My revision now needs to focus on this. I can cross this off my list because I've recalled it successfully and I, I struggled with this. This is the gap in my knowledge, and I need to now close that gap. And how you close that gap is you revisit it, you go over it again, do a refresher, you wait, and then you test yourself again. Yeah, I think it's a good way for them to see it. Yeah. And then, then yeah. to actually know like, their gaps as well, rather than just us knowing. They actually know as well. 
and they love highlighting um and i don't say ditch highlighters but i give the analogy about the actor who would highlight lines on a script now I've done a little bit of acting, <laughs> nothing professional, I did just in school. And, um, I know, I was going to ask you about the Elvis Presley, have you got any songs yeah, that you yeah, yeah, haven't yeah. Have signed that day? <laughs> Jesse drama came in handy that day. Um, when yeah, anyone who's acted or looked at a script, you highlight the lines to show you which lines you need to learn. Oh, actors would love it if they highlighted their lines and then they knew them. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It doesn't work like that. It, highlighting is there to highlight what you need to learn. And then what an actor will do will be eventually take the script away and see what they can retrieve, recall from memory. Mm. Um, so what we can do with highlighters with students, okay, yeah, highlight, highlight the key words, the key dates, the key individuals. That's the first step. Then test yourself on the highlighted information. Mm. So yes, you don't have to put the highlighters in the bin, but don't become over-reliant. Use them just at the start of the study process. Yeah, I, th I think the biggest laugh that we, me and you get loose through the podcast, like we do a takeaway message at the end, but it's not obviously in a long-term memory. So see when we go to do a takeaway, it takes us forever to record it because we just can't remember everything that you, uh, the, the guest has yeah. said. So we note, we note stuff down, but sometimes it's so difficult to pinpoint the, the final takeaway message. So you have a laugh at that when you listen back, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how, how memory works. I know, yeah. because I'm working memory, I just can't handle everything that's... My, 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 my um, earliest memories of retrieval practice in primary school was learning all the Rabbi Burns poems. <laughs> we, had, we, we had to learn them and, and speak them at the, like at the school plays and stuff like that. You'd have to go up and you would revise a poem and, and go and say, man, that's what you had to do. You'd have to keep reading it and reading it and reading it and then you would learn it off by heart. Well, through, do you through memory. Know? Do you recall that now? No, I, there's there's one that I can remember. I can recall tiny bits of, and it was something yeah. about a crocodile and a bird cleaning the crocodile's teeth. But it was it was in like Scottish. Like, it was something like cleaning those teeth, mon be a fike or something like that. That was like that was like one line from it. And it was it was about this bird that went down and cleaned the crocodile's teeth. I can't I can't remember the rest of it, but that was like. But you know, this is really interesting because it is still there in your long term memory, even yeah. though you're saying I can't remember it now. The storage strength is there, the retrieval strength is low, but I don't know any of those poems. Yeah. So let's say you and me were given the task by Clark to recite these poems because you have done that previously. It would, you would revisit it and it would come to you much quickly and yeah. it, it would come back to you. You wouldn't have to learn it from scratch. Yeah. You, just need a refresher whereas I would be I'd be a complete novice I, I am a Welsh speaker and I've been out of Wales for five years and I thought oh I haven't spoken Welsh in five years I'm, I'm rusty and I got Duolingo app mm. and, <laughs> and that's from, I went on the beginners and realized this is ridiculous I'm not a novice I'm not a beginner okay I'm not confident I haven't been using it my retrieval strength is low, but it is still there. So yeah. I just need to refresh and review and it will come back to me. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why memory is really quite interesting. They used to think a hundred years ago that things that when your long-term memory, that they would disappear forever. And then the work of Robert Bjork said, actually, no, storage strength and retrieval strength is different storage strength, how well embedded that information is in your long-term memory, does not decrease unless there's been physical damage to the brain. So that's very extreme circumstances. 
but retrieval strength fluctuates. So retrieval strength, like I said, how quickly, how easily, how confidently you can remember it, that could be low or that could be high. So this is so important for teachers because if you're doing a retrieval task with students and they can't recall the information, we shouldn't assume that it's not in their long-term memory. Either the retrieval strength is low and they just need it longer, they just needed a prompt. So that for me has just been one of the biggest things about retrieval practice, the, the retrieval strength. And I wrote an article with Robert Bjork and Dylan William about how when students go back to school after a period of time where they haven't been in school, summer holidays, Christmas holidays, when you come back to school, that isn't the best time to do a retrieval quiz. So you start, I think, in August, don't you, in Scotland? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you start earlier. So let's just say in August, students haven't been, you know, let's say you've got a two-year course. Um, do you do two-year courses? No, it's all, it's all one year. Oh, is it? Yep. okay. So you probably wouldn't do that anyway. But let's just say after, in January even, after the Christmas break, it wouldn't be ideal to start that first lesson back with a quiz because they've had, let's assume they haven't been revising or revisited and do retrieval practice over that break, then the retrieval strength will be low. Yep. Or if you've got students, if you did a quiz, that, that first lesson back and some students did well, they may have been, it's probably Re they've been revising, yeah. revising over that break. So if you wanted to check that, if you wanted to check they'd been studying over the holiday, then you could do that. But the reason why we said after the summer holidays or after a long break or perhaps when we've had lockdown and so on, when retrieval strength, if we know it's going to be low, then it'll be demoralizing for students. So what would be better is to do a refresh, a review lesson, I'm going to recap, and then the week after or the week after that do retrieval, they've had a retrieval strength boost and a boost in their confidence and motivation. Yeah, makes sense. That's, uh, Joanna, I think, I'm just still on the topic of memory, I just think it's absolutely fascinating, but it's like, when you get asked something, or you're trying to remember a song or something like that, and it's like, it's, it's on the tip of my tongue, but then you can't, you can't get it back, and then you'll just be walking along, and then it'll just pop into your head, like, what's, what's the explanation behind that? That's retrieval strength, so right. it's there, but the retrieval strength was low, so that is exactly it, the fact that that's tip of the tongue, is like, you know it's in your long-term memory. It's taken you a long time to pull that information out. Or then you hear the song or you hear the answer. You think, well, I knew that. Uh -huh. The retrieval strength was low. Mm -hmm. But then once you've heard the song or you've heard the answer, if someone was to ask you that again, you'd be able uh -huh. to answer quickly. So that tip of the tongue uh -huh. is low retrieval strength. I say that in a quiz. <laughs> My friend uh -huh. is a nerd. I'm in a quiz. <laughs> And I go, it's in my long-term memory. The retrieval strength is low. <laughs> but they make a really good point. And I think I've included this in my books. And they say, what's the point in having information in long-term memory if you can't okay. access it? We don't yeah. want it there, just buried. We want it to be retrievable. Uh -huh. We want to have high retrieval strength. So that's why we keep doing retrieval practice, because it makes yeah. it easier to recall in the future. I've, I've actually, sorry, I'm just <laughs> continuing with that, right? I've had situations where, like, I've been asked a question, though, and nothing, like, I've not even heard the song, and I'm just walking along saying, ah, that's what, it's just like, I've literally just... Just comes back in your head. I just, we know, we know, I don't even know if it's maybe, maybe it is subconsciously something to do with the environment or, like, yeah, something that's just reminding me, oh, that's what it was. 
I went to Berlin um, on a school trip and I'd been to Berlin about seven years before. And I was thinking about my trip in Berlin and I thought, oh, this is what I can remember. This is what I can remember. And then when we won the school trip, we literally came to this place and a memory, it felt like it just, it came, I was at the same place that I'd been to before that I totally forgot about. So we'd seen it on the itinerary and I was like, yeah, never been there. And then when we were there, I was like, I have been here. Mm -hmm. I have. I just sen sensed it. It was the queue. It was the queue. It it triggered it in my memory. So I remembered seeing the, the I can't I can't remember now where it was in Berlin. <laughs> but I remember when I was there. Going, oh yeah, I've definitely been here. I recognise that, and I remember what I did here. But until I seen it, until I had the queue, and that's why we talk about prompts and cues for students. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if, if you're doing a free recall task, the brain dump, right, and everything you know, and a student is literally just sat there thinking. I can't remember anything, then we can give them a prompt. We can just give them, it's like a, a little memory nudge where mm -hmm. you just give them a clue or something to just say, okay, well, I'll, I'll start you off. Why don't you write about this? And then they go, oh yeah, okay. And then you've just prompted something in their memory and, and that cue has activated something in their long-term memory, yeah. Right, Lewis, I'll tell you, right, let's see if you can remember um, my phone number that you memorised. <laughs> I don't know your phone number. Right, 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 I'll give you a prompt, 078. <laughs> forgot. He forgot it. Well, this nah. is a loaded number then, nah. but actually that's nah. another really good point, because the reason we also don't know mobile phone numbers now is because we don't need to keep recalling it. That's true, so right. you, you can just go, Lewis, in your phone. You do, whereas when we were younger and we had a home phone, yeah, <laughs> House phone. That's true. I always remember. We, yeah, you have. We all know that because we had mm -hmm. to punch it in. We had to dial it in constantly. Call it constantly. Yeah, I can like, still remember my, my, my pal's like number, my friend's exactly. number. It used to phone in the morning. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. Because, and some people don't even know their own mobile phone number now because we don't need to. We we yeah. just press the button, and it's removed that recall. So that's why you can't remember your phone number. But if you'd have done this, you know, when you were younger. Yeah. But we didn't have the phones and we did have to type the number in, then it would be there in your own. Constantly doing it. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see like if like this generation with the instant access to information that we have has got actually got a weaker working memory than maybe I don't know if that's even if I am even talking sense here, but back compared to like people before like mobiles and you got instant access to the internet. Like well, it's the, so it's the reliance it is. It's because they don't need to do that. So that's yeah. why they won't recall it. Um, but there's this debate about, do we need to recall information because we have Google? Well, there's a few arguments against that. I would much, I Google things quite regularly. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have to Google them, that would be great if I just knew it. And there's times where I thought, I wish I did know that. Or sometimes I am a bit lazy and I Google things. I go, oh yeah, I knew that. I just didn't think hard enough. But you do still have to have a level of background knowledge to understand things on yeah. Google, to find uh -huh. things and access it. So it's not that this generation has a, a different working memory, a long-term memory. It's just that things have changed in terms of access to information and, and how we can rely on it in a way that we didn't have years ago. Mm -hmm. I right, fair point. No, that's um, that's fascinating. But that can it, that'll, that brings me on to my question then, Kate. So this is from one of our um, listeners of the podcast who's very passionate about retrieval practice. Um, and she's trying to introduce this to uh, within her, her school. 
and they were looking to find out how you would suggest designing cross-faculty resources after setting up a working group to allow for a consistent approach across departments. Um, or is that a case that each faculty comes up with with their own resources? Um, I do think we should do more task and question design collaboration. First of all, if you um, on my TES page, all my retrieval practice resource templates are free to download. So I think if you just type in Kate Jones TES, my profile will come up. Um, yeah, so you can download them for free. And I've taught a range of subjects. So I've taught history, geography, RE drama might not surprise you um, <laughs> politics languages wait, wait, so, wait, 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 no no i was about to say no, never pe oh my god <laughs> like there's a special person who could do pe like i admire you really <laughs> good um yeah i've taught a range of subjects and the reason i created so many of these tasks that were transferable was to help with my workload and i did used to get quite angry when some people would say that generic resources are a bad thing because I used to think, well, I at one point I taught from year seven to 13, age 11 to 18, and I taught four subjects, four or five subjects. So I thought there, 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 there are some benefits to genericism to having these resources that work, but actually that was from a workload perspective. From a memory perspective, there are benefits of repeating tasks whether that's in the same subject or across different subjects and the reason for that being is because when you're explaining how to do a task that will be in students working memory but then if students have completed a task so let's just say cops and robbers is a retrieval task where students write down what they can remember in the cop column got four or five minutes and then the robbers column is go and talk to a partner or you other people in your class and add information to that column now they've done that in lots of my lessons so when i say cops and robbers they know exactly what they need to do i don't need to explain it it's automatic so when something is automatic it frees up space in our working memory so what that is a very good thing because then they're just focusing on the content so definitely departments if something has worked a task or resource then it works really well to use it in other subjects Objects. The differences, though, where it should be specific and non-generic is the question design. And teachers within the department then should swap and share, look online for good questions or be aware of what badly designed questions are. Um, but I do think we should all be having these conversations um, within departments and then across the whole school when it comes to retrieval practice. So have you see likes of in the school that you're in just now or schools that you've previously been in since kind of stumbling upon and then really getting into your retrieval practice and research and book writing and all that sort of stuff? Have you, has that been something that's been implemented widely within the schools that you're in? Like, so that is there like a, maybe not even a set structure to each lesson, but is there, is that like a mandatory thing that needs to be yeah. included in the lessons? The school I'm at now, um, this is my second school in Abu Dhabi, and I wanted to come to this school because it's very evidence informed. And I knew that it would be a school that I would just fit in really well. So I knew they were doing retrieval practice anyway, 
But when I've joined the school, I've just shone a bit more light onto the research and the reading. I did a presentation. We used to have like a teaching and learning lunch where you can go and have like SLT would buy everyone pizza <laughs> and someone would present. So it was like a very informal sort of thing. So I did a presentation when everyone was eating pizza and I just went, here's 10 retrieval practice ideas that work across different subjects. Um, and here's the templates. And I share stuff constantly online. So I'm sure lots of your listeners are on Twitter um, and Twitter's brilliant. And in the search bar on Twitter, I regularly, um, not, not I feel like this might sound like I'm a bit self-obsessed, but I type in retrieval practice, not to see what people have been tweeting about my box, but I type in the search bar retrieval practice and then I see lots of teachers resources and I might come across things then oh I don't follow that person but that's a really good idea or a resource I've shared that somebody has adapted slightly um, and it is difficult because most of the research has been carried out in maths and science there's a lack of research with younger students so moving forwards with retrieval practice we need more research we need more classroom research and we need to look at a wider range of subjects. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Like I said, the, we could have spoke about it before. That's something that I'm definitely going to look at and trying to, to get on board with the, the, the teachers in the different departments in my school. So I think it can it will be very, very useful. And it's something yeah. that we can all we can all kinda do. I'm not I'm not too sure actually how many kind of people have came across it, or maybe they are. I think because one of the, the emails we got out actually was encouraging staff to listen to the episode that you had on Dan Leslie's podcast as well so hopefully some of them have listened to it and then we can kind of get the ball rolling with that but no. And it'll be interesting to see how, how it is rolled out across the whole school um, from an entertainment perspective to see you know the difference that it makes Um something I'm going to look into as well within my school so it's been it's been good listening in so far and um, hopefully we can start with it when we get back after this holiday weekend. <laughs> And did, did you, um, was it something you started, obviously, like you said, at the very beginning, you found a bit, of, it was hard to get the buy-in from those older students, so did you just kind of weed it in from the, the um, plant the seed with the younger ones and then just let it go through all the way? Yeah, the younger the better. I work yeah. with lots of primary schools and lots of, um, and I work with students younger because, yeah, those older students, they... They were reluctant, and I don't know really how successful I was with them. Into they did well in their exams, but and I revised with highlighting and rereading and underlining when I was in school. And lots of teachers go, but I did these things and I did well. Yes, when but because any revision is better than no revision, of course. Yeah. But there's we're talking about more effective. Yeah. yeah. When I did revise with the when I did um, Welsh A level, and I had to memorise seven poems because there was a poem on the paper where you'd be asked questions about but the poem wasn't on the paper so nasty so i memorized seven poems and i did it and it took me hours and hours and hours it was and because i was rereading 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 but then i did test myself so i was using retrieval practice so i tested myself to see could i write down a poem from memory so I was, and, and lots of students do use retrieval practice when they do past exam questions and things like that. But it's an ongoing battle um, to get, and this is why I've still got a lot of work to do with retrieval practice, is to spread the word with teachers and leaders, students and parents and families. 
because parents will say, oh, why isn't my child done well in an assessment? I watched them revise. They were revising for hours the night before the assessment and they were reading their notes. So, well, actually, that's not the most effective way to revise. They should have been spacing it out, not cramming, and they should have been testing, not rereading. So if parents know about this, then they can intervene. Mm -hmm. If they see their child rereading at home, they can say, oh, actually, why don't I quiz you? Or why don't you test yourself? Or take a break because space practice, for example, five hours revision is better spread out over five days than five hours in one day. And students still think that to do that, to do it in a block and crammed is better. It was actually for long-term learning, spreading it out. So the more that we tell parents and families and carers, then the more that they can help, they'll understand why we're quizzing them in lessons as well, because they might think, oh, schools, you know, exams, factories, always doing tests. No, it's a teaching and learning strategy, yep. retrieval practice, not an assessment strategy. Mm -hmm. Kate, see in terms of, I'm in charge of leading a, like the five higher group, like students are leading, uh, studying five A-levels. Could they like do a retrieval practice on themselves? Or does it always need to come from the teacher? Oh, yeah, they absolutely should yeah be using retrieval practice themselves so and i use retrieval practice as a teacher as well um which i didn't for a long time so whenever i've got to teach an a level like higher content and i haven't seen it for a while or it's new material to me then i will one of the things i do is as i'm reading the chapter is i will write a question on one page and answer on the other and then i leave it a while and then i quiz myself using the questions i made and i check the answers myself yep flashcards are a great way so let's just say students have highlighted their notes with keywords they could have a keyword on one side of the flashcard the definition on the other now they can test themselves however with flashcards students don't actually always do the act of recall they look at a flashcard flip it over and go yeah i knew that no that's not retrieval they need to either verbally answer it and that's why it helps if a parent or someone else will quit a friend will say, what does this word mean? And then they verbally say it, you flip over, the answer is immediately there. Or if they're on their own, they can use a flashcard. Here's the question, write down the answer, flip it over, see the answer and then tick across. And then obviously the cross have shown the gaps in their knowledge, the tick, they could recall that. So retrieval practice and the brain dump idea, write down everything you know. Well, they could look on their study list of topics mm. and go, right, I'm going to write down everything I know about this give themselves a blank piece of paper pen write down everything they know then they look at their textbook and they check is it correct is there anything else they could have added what I get my students to do when they do that is to get a different color pen and then if they think oh I didn't add that I'm going to add this then they've added it in a different color pen yep. so one color pen shows what they could recall from memory and then the red pen or whatever shows the bits that they didn't remember so yep. that they'll hopefully remember next time. So retrieval practice is so flexible, adaptable. We mm. can do it in a lesson, outside of the lesson, with friends testing and quizzing each other. Although I want to just sort of make this point, um, retrieval practice should always be individual. We can quiz and test each other, but if I was to ask you two questions now, and you were a little quiz team, and let's just ask a question, and only one of you knew it, the other one didn't, but then you're a quiz team, you both get the point. So me as a teacher, I don't know that 
So I'm mm-hmm. just gonna say, yeah, Lewis got it right, okay? <laughs> but I don't know that you didn't know it, Clark. But I've just, so I've given you both the point and I've assumed that you recalled that and you didn't. So that's why the cops and robbers activity where students write it individually on their own and then go and find out what their other peers have written. That's good. That's, that's where they can still have the individual retrieval but then they can still collaborate with others after. Um, and you do think pair share in Scotland? Yeah. Uh, right, so I've just written an article with Dylan William about think pair share and the sort of three bits of advice that we give. Teachers often forget the think, they skimp on the think. They go think pair share and students just talk to each other straight away. You need to have individual think time. So that could be um, a mini whiteboard, a piece of paper where students have time to answer a question on their own, their own thinking time. So they write down their response and they say, right, now turn to your pair. And basically, I really like this pair and compare to share your answers. Okay, maybe add something to yours, check your answer. But the other thing with the pair is we've got to make sure if we want students to learn from each other, they have to listen to each other. So listen very carefully. So you might say pairs, one of you is A, one of you is B. A talk to your pair, be listen, stop, switch over. So you've yep. done the think and the pair. Now, everyone has had the chance to recall information on their own, to check it with their partner. So what we can now do is cold call, which is no hands up. And I'm going to come to anyone in the class and I'm going to say, Clark, can you tell me your response? Now, at this point, you've had time to think about it on your own. You've had time to check with the partner. You should be confident enough if I cold call you and ask. Mm-hmm. Then I might say, okay, that's a great answer. Lewis, did you want to add anything? Or Lewis, what did your pair tell you? And when you do that and say, well, what did your pair tell you? Because that encourages them to listen to their partner even more when they know that they could be asked what their partner told them. So there's lots of things like that. So think pair share is great for retrieval practice. That's that's, um, interesting the way you put that as well, because how often, I don't know if you recall, like how often have you done that? Like that's one that I learned at uni and one that, that was one of my kind of most common go-tos after like at the end of a lesson or whatever but I didn't I, it was nowhere near as like kind of oh, the thing but I must have think about it I, I'm not I'm saying like I'll, I'll be I'll just be like that right take 20 seconds okay right just think just have a wee think to yourself or whatever but I like the idea of using a whiteboard and like I've never thought about it just jot down your own notes and stuff that way and then having the structure with the pair bit saying a talk to b and right okay switch over b's going to speak now you know do the cold call bit. Now that's a, that's a good way to structure it. Yeah. Well, with it. the whiteboard, you could do the think on your own uh-huh. uh, and then the share could be everyone put their whiteboards up. Yeah, and then pick. So yeah, there's, this is the thing, isn't it? Think pair share. We've all sort of, these things are like, oh yeah, you know, we've always done this, but actually let's think about how we're doing this and can yeah. we do it better? Uh-huh. Do it better, yeah. I like the, I don't know if you're Clark as well, but see about the, the flashcards. See, Kate, have you made... I don't know if that would be effective or not, but have you ever, like, if you're doing, like, a, a certain topic in history of that, have you made up class flashcards, like, just, like, me packs that you can maybe give to the students if you're... Yeah, so this is a really tricky one. Do students create their own or does the teacher? Yeah. And there's benefits of the students making their own because that could be a really good revision task, but they don't always create great flashcards Mm -hmm. and the other thing about flashcards which i would say start as early as possible because what happens is exam classes come this revision period exam time 
are trying to make flashcards for all these subjects. So that, that, you know, that class I told you about that I took on for two years, the boys and the girls, we made flashcards from September of the start of the two year course. And we were doing three flashcards a week. So then by the time when we got to the revision, mm -hmm. they had bulks and bulks of flashcards. They didn't, it wasn't a workload issue. They'd been making it for two years because mm -hmm. the purpose of the flashcards was the retrieval. And lots of students make flashcards where they just copy out from the textbook and then they're rereading. It's not retrieval. Yeah. So, but the problem I did have was I set students a homework, make three flashcards. And then I looked at their flashcards and the questions were too easy, too difficult, not relevant. So I made for that class the flashcards, but it took me hours and hours. Yeah. So, it's, But then I could use them again. Oh. But what's even better, though, is not to do that, is to show yeah. them how to create a flashcard, maybe make some with them and say, why are you asking that question? Why are you putting that on a flashcard? You don't need to know that. Yeah. The flash, and actually, that's really easy. Why is that even on a flashcard? You mm -hmm. know, come on, you don't need, oh, that's too precise, too difficult, too obscure. So model and show them how to do it. Because then when they leave school, if they go to university, they know how to create flashcards effectively. Yeah. Because if we keep doing it for them, we're not there for the rest <laughs> of their life with them. And they're going to be responsible. So, yeah. the so the flashcards literally is just a question on one side and then the answer on the other. That's My mantra, which you feel free to use, is flashcards do not need to be flashy. Yeah. Question and answer, simple. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How much information is on it? Is it just as simple as that? Yeah, question, yeah. answer. And I don't even, it depends on the type of question, um, but I usually put one question, one answer. But if it was more of a, a closed question where there's a one-worded answer, then maybe you'd put three. Yeah. But, I but the problem with putting more than one question on is what a good idea to do is if they can answer it correctly put it in a correct pile if they can't put it in the incorrect pile so when you've got three questions and like well, well i got that one right i got that one wrong which pile do i put that in yep. so just have one question one answer and then as you're going through yeah you can put it in the correct incorrect pile the incorrect pile i need to revisit but i'll still visit the correct pile later to see what i can remember right I'm thinking, uh, it's just got me thinking, like, is it's sometimes with PE, I'm like, oh, how am I meant to implement this with, like, practical lessons? But then thinking about the certificate stuff, you could do it. You could make the flashcards for, like, the command words or, like, the, the factors right. that I number for. Like, there's loads of stuff that you could you could do mm -hmm. with. So definitely food for thought to, um, you know, as, as a PE, technique on how to, to learn mm -hmm. this stuff. P and music and drama you think of any sport or a physical activity a marathon is a great example you prepare for that in advance very thoroughly you would never cram the day before marathon i think i'm just gonna you know i'm just gonna train the day before that's so ridiculous mm -hmm. but so students have that idea about academic studies i'll yeah. just cram the day before what any physical activity or a music exam mm -hmm. let's just say you practice over a long period of time and you prepare and for let's just you know a physical activity or competition all sorts of things sleep and diet those things matter with academic yeah. learning as well. muscle at the end of the day isn't it yeah, yeah we, just, we, we need to start to take in that approach that, that we would have that seems so natural and obvious with sport and music and, and the same with if you've got a big show in drama coming up 
you would rehearse for months. You wouldn't just say, let's just do a quick rehearsal the day before, because then it would be a mess, wouldn't it? You wouldn't know your lines. It yeah. wouldn't be slick. It wouldn't be polished. But yet, with academic learning... Oh, it's stranger. Yeah, so we that need to... perception of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good, um, a good way of putting it, isn't it? You wouldn't cram the night before a marathon. Unless your name's Clark Burrow. He, no, I've done, he, done he, would, he would maybe do that. <laughs> Still beat you, don't I, though? In four hours sleep. <laughs> Brilliant. Right then, Kate. Um, my, my next question, still on the topic of retrieval practice, would be how, how do you then measure the, the impact of retrieval practice on learning? Do you have like some sort of system in place or is it, how would you go about that? Well, I gave you that example with that class that did really well with the, the grades and the outcomes. However, I also mentioned that before the exam, we were very confident. And for me, um, that retrieval practice is, is actually, I see the impact constantly because I can see students recalling things. I repeat quizzes as well. So I've done a quiz, a multiple choice quiz, and then two or three weeks later, I will do the same quiz. I might stick in a few more questions from what we've done in between. And then that's even lower stakes because you say, we've done this quiz before, don't worry. But then we, when they can see the progress, they can see, oh, I can remember that now. And I can remember it easier and more confidently. That's the impact. And we want students to have these moments where they realize that retrieval practice works. So we want to get the balance right with retrieval success and retrieval challenge. And when they do have that moment, wow, this works, then they are more likely to use retrieval practice independently at home. Because, and the other thing is my classes know that I will quiz them pretty much every lesson. And they say, we've got a quiz today. Yeah, we have. So I've been, you know, I'm ready for it because they know I'm going to quiz them. They can prepare for it. Yeah, so there's always, yeah, yeah it, it absolutely should be a learning habit, a teaching and learning habit. So, but I don't keep a tracker or a record with yeah. retrieval practice. I don't keep a spreadsheet, can't be doing with that. Because another reason for that is it is low stakes. Mm -hmm. for the student so if I was like well I've kept a you know a record of your scores and I'm monitoring it then it's not high stakes so then it is high stakes and we want to keep it low but then the other reason is workload if we're going to use retrieval practice every lesson which actually we really should use it every lesson it has to be sustainable for us it has to be workload friendly that's why my mantra with tasks and techniques is low effort high impact Low effort for the teacher, but has a high impact on student learning. And low effort is not lazy. Low effort uh, is just, I'm not spending hours cutting and laminating and gluing, yeah. which I did early in my career. I would do sorting card tasks. Honestly, I looked at my parents, I was 21, and <laughs> I was an NQT. And my sister would be on the cutting station, my mum would be laminating, and another sister would be putting them in envelopes. And it was like all of this stuff for five minute task. That yeah. probably had, it was high effort, yeah. low time and effort, probably a low impact on learning because it, it was over very quickly and Maybe I wasn't like fancy and stuff oh yeah jazz hands did it all you know <laughs> we just learned from that and reflect on it was the cops and robbers well, I've got a template I don't even need the template because oh. in your book draw a line down the page 
write what you can recall in one column on one half of the page, get information on the other. That is so low effort for me, mm -hmm. but they've done high the impact. high impact on student learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind with every task that you do. There are some times where we put a little bit more effort in, like a multiple choice question is harder to design, but then multiple choice quizzes can be marked themselves with technology. We don't have to do any marking or Dylan Williams says the best person to mark a test is the person who's taken a test. So students can self-correct. So the workload changes a little bit with multiple choice questions. You might invest a little bit more in the question, but there's no really workload for the, the marking and the feedback because either the technology will do it for you or self and peer assessment. So low effort, high impact. Mm, and you, and it's like the, the cops and robbers one like that's easy you can just i like you said just draw a line down the middle and you, you don't necessarily need to do like the design the multiple choice one every single lesson either do you know what i mean that could be maybe a bit yeah. less sure. i think i think there's a lot of things in our schools and our teaching as well that's high effort and low impact but we yeah. just, we've not really done the research on them because we were talking about that yesterday as well and like setting and streaming your classes is really got a low impact um among other stuff in terms of attainment um, but I suppose you can find research that suggests otherwise as well, based on all the research that's out there for everything. So, um, nice. So low, low impact. Uh, sorry, low effort, high impact. <laughs> yeah, low effort, high impact. Yeah, is, your work, is your working memory that bad, mate? It's not working. What's that? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> right. Right. Moving on then. That, to that the, was a right. shocking joke. <laughs> Right, moving on to the last um, question, Kate, of the main part of the, the podcast. Um, we'll just keep this short and sweet. We've taken a lot of your time so far, but thanks very much for um, your passion and your information that you've um, demonstrated tonight and given us. So I know some of the questions might have felt like an interview for you, like for a, a senior leadership position, but... Oh, they've been brilliant. Really good questions. I'm sorry. I think some of my answers have been very long. I'm, as you can tell, I could talk about retrieval practice all day, couldn't I? Yeah, so it's, defi it's definitely shining through your passion for it. Um, so just lastly then, in your opinion, Kate, we ask this to a lot of our guests. Um, what makes a high quality teacher in the current climate? This is really easy. A teacher who is keen to learn and embraces professional learning and development. Um, yeah. I've, I've written about something, the, the professional learning gap, where there are teachers and there's people in all professions who can plateau, who don't want to invest in CPD, don't want to read the books. I've met these teachers. And then there's other teachers like yourselves who want to learn more, want to improve, and those teachers will keep improving. And then the teachers who aren't embracing it, they won't. And then this is the teacher and professional learning gap that we have. So we all need to be moving forwards together. Yeah, I think that's, I, th I think when you don't, even m for myself, if you don't keep up with stuff, it feels like you're just getting left behind and you're not keeping up. It changes so quickly as well, doesn't it? Like everything, even so I've only, been, I've only been teaching for like, properly for like two and a bit years. And uh, it's, it's even changed a lot. Yeah, it is a lot and it's overwhelming at times. We can't read all the books choice is really powerful mm -hmm. and how we use our time that's why the low effort for the teacher don't spend time precious time on you know laminating when you could be using that to for your professional learning so yeah. just be wise with your time yeah or, or get a job um, an hour and a half away from your school and you can just listen to a podcast on, on the journey that's there you go <laughs> there's another <laughs> 
Spend what, a, one you, what one do you listen to? Spend everything. Uh, spend a fortune in petrol. Make get a podcast <laughs> with it as well. That's great. Um, so just keep learning, have a growth mindset, and um, keep up to date with your CPD. Love that. Right, fi- podcast. Yeah, that's my advice to teachers. Keep listening to your podcast. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Get, get it in there. Right, f- the final part then, just a wee bit of fun that we have with all of our guests, Kate, is just a wee quick fire round of three questions. So three quick questions and three short, sharp answers, all right? So number one, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? <gasps> Love to teach. Nice. Brilliant. Number two, which people or books have had the biggest influence on your life? Teaching-wise, Daniel Willingham, why don't students like school? Brilliant. Final I think, one I, I think I, that one's come up a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, it has actually. Final one then, what top three tips would you give to a teacher just now to help them get started with more retrieval practice? Make it regular, make it low stakes, and vary the retrieval diet mix it up with written verbal multiple choice cued recall free recall so yeah brilliant that um leads us nicely to the the end of the podcast so i just want to take the time to thank you for giving up your time tonight that was a, almost an hour and a half of your time there spent chatting to us so we're extremely grateful for you coming on tonight to share your knowledge and experience on all things retrieval practice so thanks very much thanks very oh, much thank kate you. yeah thank you really enjoyed it End of episode 75, am I right? 76. Your, work, your working memory is a shocker, isn't it? But the actual thing is, by the way, it's 75 because we're putting that one up first before George, uh, no, George Rashford, Clark, have a break. Um, we're putting this one up first, do we know? Aye, that's right. So this is episode 75. But so you're having a shocker then? Yeah, I'm having a shocker. It's my working memory. <laughs> that's the way with it. That, was well, that was well done for you, by the way. Well done. Oh, listen, um, right, so what is your key takeaway message from tonight's episode? I've got... Pages full of notes there from tonight's episode with Kate. It was absolutely fantastic. Loads of um, actionable strategies that we like to take away from this. It's actually been one of the first episodes like that in a wee while, wasn't it? That we've got Aye. we've got loads of wee nuggets that we can take away and, and implement into our, our teaching. But um, probably the one that, that, that kind of stuck out the most for me, or in fact two, can I say two? Mm-hmm. Was in relation to the flashcards and the, the Think Pair Share and how Kate actually structures the Think Pair Share. So the flashcard one... Um, it's one that I heard Kate speak about in podcasts and stuff before, but I wasn't 100% sure on how to, how, to, how to actually do it and what the actual purpose was and how to do it effectively. Um, so just putting a question on one side of the card and then the answer on the other side of the card with things that you're maybe struggling with or where the gaps in your knowledge are. And um, good idea to create them with your class and show them how to do it effectively. And then you can use them and you've got a wee bank of flashcards that you can use. And also good if you're teaching something for the first time, so maybe it's the higher PE course mm-hmm. um, and using flashcards on yourself to help you learn the content that you're ultimately responsible for teaching the, the pupils. So very, very good takeaway message there, in my opinion. And then the second one was with regards to Think Pear Share, something that I use quite a lot of with my um, classes, predominantly my BGE classes, so getting them to the thinking time, actually being really... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Purposeful with it. So with the thinking time, actually giving it an actual purpose. Like like Kate said, using using a whiteboard with it, I thought that was brilliant. So it doesn't necessarily need to be just sitting there thinking. It's like, in in the words of um, Charlie Nicholas. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought thought of that there when you said that. 
Is that the, for any of the listeners doesn't know who that is, it's a, it's a Sky Sports uh, pundit who always starts with. And I was sitting there thinking <laughs> whatever it is about the game he was thinking, but you know, there's, a, there's a famous YouTube clip going about type in Charlie Nicholas. We'll, we'll, we'll attach it in the when we show the episode. It's <laughs> sure. a wee extra good day. Sure. But anyway, I'll appreciate that. Uh, so the, the thinking time, you, you can use a whiteboard as well, and you can jot down your notes or whatever, and then take actually take time for that. The, the pair bit, so actually saying, right, okay number yourselves one and two, or A and B, whatever it is, and then A, you guys are going to talk first, B is you are listening, do that for a set amount of time, right, switch it over, and then do the cold call bit, so it's an actual proper structure to how you're doing the thing per year, and it's done with quality rather than trying to um, rush through it, with like five minutes to the end, where sometimes I've, I I'm, I'm, can be guilty of doing that as well, so mm. um, that was two, two key things for me as my takeaway messages, but... I'll, I'll pass the, the mic over to Mr. Burrow and he can leave us with his words of wisdom and his key takeaway messages from tonight's episode. I'll see, I'll see how well my working, working memory lasts here. But I'm gonna, <laughs> don't, don't rush through them because you've got an Indian coming in mind. <laughs> 45 minutes, so should take about 45 minutes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to a, f- um, I think my long-term memory here and go back into Dr. Ash Casey's podcast on cooperative learning. And Dr. Ash Casey spoke a lot about um, creating groups and where people go into a part of a group and go into another group and learn something and bring it back to their group. Um, so I would say that the strategy of cops and robbers is aligned to the cooperative learning model in the sense that you write down in one half of the page, which is the cops, is what information do you know about a particular part of the course or a particular topic? And then another half is the robber's side where it's your responsibility to leave your chair, go to another person in, in the classroom, and then pick up different things from not only them, but obviously as well, different people. So move around the class and try and learn as much as you possibly can from from your peers. And then that means you're building on their knowledge of that topic um, rather than it just coming from the teacher. Um, so, yeah, so that would be my key takeaway message, the teaching and learning strategy of cops and robbers. Very, very easy to set up and hopefully has a lot of benefits for the young people. As Kate said, it's all about low effort and high impact. Mm-hmm. And that's what we look um, to bring from the podcast as well, is low effort um, and high impact strategies that we can take into our, uh, into our teaching. I think it's the same, but with, with um, listening to a podcast, though, like it's not as much effort as sitting down and... Or it doesn't take as much time as sitting down and reading a book. It's something that you can do whilst you're doing other things or whilst you're driving and... I think it's a lot more time efficient, isn't it? And if you're taking those wee kind of key nuggets of information from from them, then... Yeah, I think you can be doing other things when you're listening to it as well. No, so definitely. Then are you retaining it as much? Yeah, that's, that's Who knows? But However, it might be that, that one thing that you hear and it's like that wee aha moment and then you can take it no, It's a light bulb moment or are you then going action on it? Definitely. But those were... That was... Um, instead, of, that wasn't a very quick takeaway message section, was it? That was quite a... A lengthy one, but just so much good information in there, and so many good wee, wee nuggets of info that um, I'll certainly be acting on and taking forward into into my own teaching. So yeah, I apologise for making it so long, um, but believe you, this when you actually listen to it, they're a lot longer than that. We just have to <laughs> cut them quite a lot, don't we? <laughs> anyway, with that being said, that um, um, rounds us off nicely with this episode. So thanks to everybody that tuned in, and we. <laughs> Hope you get listening to next week's episode as well. Take care, have a great week. Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of the podcast. 
We hope you've been able to take something away that you can implement into your practice or life. If you regularly listen to the podcast, then why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and where we can perhaps improve. That way we can take action and further develop the Obo podcast. Until next time, we hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.